Well, good morning. Sorry. It's a privilege to be here this morning to share with you. Uh, last Sunday, we, uh, family and I went to, to dinner for my birthday, and one of the very first things we talked about, Dad and I, was who's going to preach today, because I bet Jeff's not here. And it took him a couple days to decide, but uh, we were right. And so y'all remember Jeff and his brother as they are, uh, how did he put it? on a family trip. And if you watched TV last night, you probably saw him somewhere in the crowd. And so uh, y'all remember them as they drive back from Minneapolis this week. Um, so, but it's a privilege to be here. Uh, I don't get this opportunity often. I'm uh, very low on the totem pole of guest fill-in preachers. And so uh, I'm, it's a privilege to be here. I had a great illustration to kind of get us going. and. Um, I was going to ask, can I do some word association and ask you to start thinking about a bunch of different things, and, and I just decided to cut it down to just one. What comes to your mind when I ask you, what's a referee? <laughs> yeah, odds are your answer this morning is a tad different than it was at 5.10 last night when the ball game started, at least the Auburn fans in the room, and if you didn't watch the ball game, don't waste your time, we lost. We shouldn't have fouled. It was a foul, even though the refs missed a double dribble. I'm not bitter. I won't complain about it the rest of my life. But I probably will. Um, I still hadn't getting over, gotten over the Saints losing uh, when the refs didn't call the foul to the Rams in this NFC Championship game. And I'll probably complain about it the rest of my life. But my point is, uh, our perspective, our perception of what a word means, or in this case, what a person is, changes by uh, our experiences with those people. And so in this case, if we're a Virginia fan, we think the refs are the greatest people in the world. And if we're an Auburn fan, we think they're blind and we don't know what they're doing. And, and so I, I say all that to say this, what comes to your mind when I ask you, what is a Christian? Odds are, if we went around the room and we answered that question out loud, we would have a bunch of different answers. Uh, your, your upbringing, your tradition, your uh, understanding of God's Word would shape how you would answer that question. Uh, one Bible teacher said that if we asked ten different people, we'd get nine different answers. And if you want to test me, I would just say go out in the community and just as you pass people in the street, ask them, are, are you a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? What do you think about when you get a Christian? And you're going to get answers like, oh, you know, Bible thumpers or conservatives or homophobics or you're going to get people who are redeemed and are, well, I've always been a Christian. My grandma was a Christian and I always went to church. And, but I think it's important that we know the answer to that question. Um, but it's something that I find interesting as I've studied is if you read the New Testament, you'll notice the early church never called themselves Christians. Uh, in fact, only three times in the New Testament is the word Christian used, and it was a derogatory term. It was the, the Gentiles who were making fun of the believers, and the idea was, oh, you just want to be little Jesuses. And so this idea of being a Christian was a derogatory term. It was a way they talked down to these people who were following this new, this new religion, this new up, uprising. And uh, On the contrary, 281 times in the New Testament, 
the church was said to be filled with disciples. Andy Stanley said, I want to suggest that changing the primary word we use to describe ourselves, we've lost the clarity that the word disciple conveyed about what it means to be an actual follower of Jesus. And you're probably thinking, like, oh, what's the difference? I mean, what's it? And I hope just over the next few minutes we can dig into a text of Scripture and we can see, am I a Christian? Am I following some religion? Am I just showing up on Sunday and checking off some boxes? Or am I a disciple? Am I really a follower of Jesus Christ? Is my life marked by church attendance and Bibles on my dash, or is my life marked by a real active relationship with Jesus Christ? And so this morning we're going to be in Mark, uh, I'm sorry, that's Sunday school. Mark is Sunday school. Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to read a story that um, if you've been in church, you've probably heard. And if you were in Sunday school just a couple of weeks ago, we read Mark's version of this story. Uh, we're going to be in verse 18, and we're going to read the story of when Jesus called the first disciples. And then we'll talk about it and kind of break it down and see what we can learn from it. So uh, read along with me as I read, starting in verse 18. Matthew writes, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers... Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Like I said, a couple weeks ago, we talked about this story in Sunday school, at least in our Sunday school class, and uh, we, we read it out of Mark's gospel, and, and it's very, very similar. There's not many details that are different. And, and one thing that stood out to me as I read and prepared to teach this passage in Sunday school was the fact that Mark and Matthew both are very clear that immediately... They dropped their nets, they left their family, they left their way of life, and they went and followed Jesus. And it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, why? Like, we don't know much about what happened with Jesus before, but we know these are the first guys that he's called. So, how do they know about him? Why would they just willingly drop everything and go? Um, and, and I think it's helpful if we have a little history lesson. Um, and so, if you're not a history nerd, I'm sorry, but if you are, I hope that you enjoy the next couple of minutes. Uh, in the Jewish faith, in the upbringing in the first century, when a, child, when a boy became five years old, he entered the Torah school. And so all the five-year-olds were brought to the synagogue, the temple, and they would go into the Torah school. And what they would do is they would bring all the boys together, and they would spend the next five years learning the first five books of the New Testament, of the New Testament, the Old Testament. And so what they would do is, because it was an oral tradition, the printing press hadn't been uh, invented yet, they would memorize huge chunks of the Scripture. 
And they would start this at a very, very young age, at five years old. And so at five years old, they would bring all the boys in, and they would get them in a room, and what they would do is this really neat uh, ceremony they would do. They would take a drop of honey, and they would put it on the tongues of all of these little boys. Now, we think I honey, we can get honey in little packets at Chick-fil-A or at the grocery store or whatever, but this was a very poor culture. And so for most of these little boys, this was the first time they'd ever tasted something sweet. And so they would take this honey and they would dip this honey on their tongue and they would just be, their taste buds would be flooded with sweetness. And when they did that, the leaders would read or would say to them, begin to start speaking the book of Genesis to them. And the idea was that this book that we're about to learn, this Torah, is sweet to you. And so as this sweetness filled their mouth, the Word of God would fill their ears for the first time. And this sweetness from the Word of God would just wash over them. And so it was this really cool ceremony to start off this religious training. And so... They would do that for about five years, and then around the time they were about ten, they would kind of weed out the crowd. And so imagine that all of you in this room are five-year-old little boys in first-century Jewish families. And you've all started learning the Torah at Torah school. Ultimately, what would happen is this section right here at age ten we get to keep going. And the rest of you, sorry, you didn't make the cut. And so you would go and you would learn regular, you know, whatever kind of education of the day, and then you'd start being an apprentice, an apprentice learning the family trade, uh, whatever it is that you were going to be raised up to do. But for you guys, y'all are the top. You're the 10, 20% that made the cut. And so what's going to happen is, while y'all are all learning how to be a carpenter or a fisher or a whatever, they're going to be learning the rest of the Old Testament. And so they're going to spend the next seven or eight years of their life learning the rest of the Scriptures. And so you're going to know the Torah. And they're going to know the rest of God's Word. And what's going to happen is about the time they turn 17 or 18, there's going to be even another cut. And so you guys... Congratulations, you made the cut. But now if you want to keep going on, you've got to find a rabbi who's willing to teach you. And so what they would do is they would pick a rabbi and they would come and they would sit at his feet. And what the rabbi would do is he would question them. And so he'd say, Dennis, and he would start asking Dennis all these questions. And if Dennis didn't answer the right way or even didn't answer the way that he wanted them to answer then Dennis wouldn't make the cut. And so then he would ask Pat. And the same thing. And Pat made the cut. And so at, at 18, everything Dennis had spent his whole life training for was over because the rabbi wouldn't choose him. And so Dennis would go back to his family and he would take up the family business. And Pat would spend the next several years following the rabbi around, learning what he can learn about the rabbi. Um, and so... Um, and so eventually they've narrowed it down to where there's just the religious leaders are this very small select group of people. Now within the rabbis there's this 
second tier almost. And it's, I told Susie, I'm going to try to say it one time, and I'm probably going to butcher it, but um, there's, there's a, the religious leaders, and then there's the religious leaders that have shmiha, which is a Hebrew word that just basically is like, there's these guys, and then there's like these super cool guys. And so like, okay, to use a baseball illustration, imagine at five years old you start playing travel baseball and you're preparing to be a major leaguer. Now, we all know that very, very few of these five-year-olds that are playing travel baseball are ever going to make it to the major leagues. But for illustration's sake, say you've made the cut and you get the chance to go to Mike Trout, the best player in the major leagues, and he chooses you to follow him and learn how to be a major leaguer. Like, that's a whole lot better than, like, Charlie Culberson that, like, sits on the bench for the Braves. So, of course, you're wanting this best of the best, right? And that's just the way we are. And so here you've got this kind of tiered section. And so eventually, all that to say this, eventually, if you've made the cut, then about the age of 18, you become a Talmud for a rabbi. What do I mean by that? Rabbi is just a teacher. A Talmud is just his disciple. And so you would sit at his feet. You would follow him closely. Like It would be awkward to us how much time and how close you spent if you were a rabbi's Talmud. In fact, they said the greatest compliment a Talmud could ever receive is that the dust of his rabbi was all over him. And the idea is not that he's dirty necessarily, but it's that everywhere the rabbi steps, whatever he steps up in, sprays all over the guy right behind him, right? And so they would learn their mannerisms. They would learn everything they could learn about. They would learn how to speak like their rabbi speaks. They would learn how to answer questions like their rabbi answers questions. They would learn how to study the scriptures like their rabbi learned to study the scriptures. Now, why do I give you this whole history lesson about the Jewish religious education in the first century? Well, it's because this. In the book of Matthew, we see Jesus starts out. We've got his genealogy. The wise men come to see him. He leaves. He goes to Egypt. He comes back to Nazareth, and he grows up. And then John the Baptist is preparing the way. And right at the end of that story, we've all probably heard that story, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and the heavens open and God says, this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. We know at 12 years old, Jesus was sitting in the temple correcting the teachers of the day. And so, even though in verse, I mean, chapter 4 in the sections we read, odds are, even if Jesus hadn't started his ministry yet, odds are the disciples... These four knew who he was. Odds are they had been talking about him. Because odds are Jesus had that shmiha. He had that extra like, <clears throat> that's like, I want to learn from this guy. We know he had that because in, later in the book, in Matthew, in chapter 7, it says, uh, there's a section where he's teaching, and it says the crowds were astonished and questioned what authority, what shmiha he used to teach and to interpret the Scripture. So we know he had. So, so this is this guy, Jesus, who has this like, mm, coming up to him and saying, 
hey, come with me. Well, of course, okay, when we know that, they're going to throw their stuff down and go with them, right? So it's not, it's not surprising to us that they just walked away from their whole life and went and followed Jesus. And I think there are a few lessons that we can learn about what it means to be a disciple, what Jesus is really asking us when He says, come, follow me. And the first thing that I think we can learn is that Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. And here's the thing. These guys were B-teamers at best. Uh, They may not have even made the B-team because we don't know when they went back fishing. And there's nothing wrong with being on the B-team. The B-team's great. Eventually, hopefully, you learn your skill and your trade enough that you get to move up to varsity, right? Just this week, there was an article written about how Auburn doesn't make the Final Four if the walk-ons aren't there to help prepare them for the games that they play. And so we know there's a place for the B team, but none of us willingly sign up to be second string. None of us want to be behind someone else. That's just not how we're made. We want to be the best. We want everybody to look at us. We want to be on the varsity. We want to be the guy that makes the shot or at least gets fouled and gets to make the free throws to win the game, right? That's who we want to be. But for most of us, we're never going to be that guy. For most of us, we're going to be B-teamers at best. And I don't mean to say that to offend you because I am very much aware that I'm probably not even a B-teamer. But Jesus chose to build His team with B-teamers. John MacArthur said that God skipped the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt, the great library in Alexandria, the great philosophers in Athens, the powerful in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the thinker, and Caesar. He chose men so ordinary, it was comical. And think about it. I feel ordinary every day. And these four guys, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, are fishermen. You can't get much more ordinary in the first century than to be a fisherman. I mean, it's just it's nothing against them. They were just ordinary. But they were willing. They threw their nets down, and they followed Him. And here's the thing. God can do more through our availability than we can ever do through our ability. And so God chooses people who are willing to go with Him as opposed to people who are trying to do it on their own. And so I think the first thing we can see from this passage, from understanding who these guys are, is that He wants willing people. He doesn't need the best. That should be somewhat of an encouragement to you as well because oftentimes... And here I am, I'm going to jump ahead, and so I may repeat myself. But oftentimes, when we know we're supposed to do something, we say, I can't do that. I'm not comfortable with that. When, when we know that people, God's raised up people that are, are asking us to do things like be a Sunday school teacher or to go share our faith, it's like, mm, I don't know about that. I'm just not sure I'm comfortable doing that. And I'm here to tell you, that God can do more through your open heart than you can ever do on your own. So first, He didn't choose the best, He chose the willing. Number two, our primary calling is to be with Him. Look at verse 19. And He said to them, follow me. Where? 
what are we going to do? I mean, he didn't, he didn't tell them. He didn't spell out what we're about to do. He didn't tell them we're going to go here and this is the tour of places that we're going to go. He just, hey, come follow me. Just be with me. And of course, they understood, oh my gosh, this rabbi wants to invest in me. And so they were going to do everything they could do for as long as he would let them to be right behind him to be right next to him so that Jesus' dust would be all over them. And so the call to us is the same. I mean, like, it doesn't say, okay, 21st century church, to be a believer, you have to do this, this, and this, and this. To be a disciple, you have to check all these boxes. Jesus' call is the same. Come, follow me. And honestly, I think We've made it very easy to learn about Jesus. We've got podcasts and books and Bible studies. And I don't know about y'all, but I have like 30 Bibles. Why do I need 30 Bibles? Like a, one or two is probably plenty. Um, and, but we, we can learn about Jesus all we want to and never really spend time with Jesus. And so he's not asking them to learn about him. He's calling them to come learn and be with Him. And so that's the same thing He's asking for us. And so, yes, do not hear me say you shouldn't be in corporate worship. You shouldn't be here on Wednesday night in Bible study because you should. Sunday morning at 8.30 or 11, like we should prioritize time with other believers. We should prioritize time for corporate worship and for the preaching of God's Word. We should prioritize Sunday school because life change happens best in small groups and they're the people that are going to walk with you when things are good and when things are bad. And so if you're not involved in a Sunday school class, let me encourage you at 9.45 when we leave here to find somebody to get you to a group so that you can walk through life with people who are walking through life. They can hold you up. They can help you. They can help you grow. But ultimately, what Jesus is calling us to do is to be with Him. And so, yeah, we, we're with Him by saturating ourselves with His Word. We're with Him by spending time with Him in prayer and meditation. We're with Him by investing all of our lives into the kingdom. And so, our primary call is to be with Him. It's to follow me. And so first we see that he calls not just... He doesn't call the best, he calls the willing. Second, we see that our primary calling is to be with him. Third, we see that to follow him, we have to leave it all. And we don't like that. I'm just be honest. None of us like that. We don't want to leave it all. We only want what's comfortable or what's best. But look at, look at what he taught, what Matthew writes. There's two things he says here that they leave behind. And so in verse 20, uh, it says, immediately they left their nets. And in verse 22, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Why do you think it's significant that he felt the need to say they left the boat and their father? Two things represented in that one verse. That if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to be a disciple and not just a Christian, that we've got to leave behind. First is our families. Now, I'm not saying that your family won't be supportive. I don't know. But odds are there will be a time where you make a faith decision 
that people are going to think is crazy. College students, graduate students, it may be that God's calling you to postpone your career a couple years and go be a journeyman. And your parents are going to say, no, I spent money, money, money on getting you a degree. What are you going to do? Who's going to have the greatest sway on your life? Are you going to do what God's leading you to do? Or are you going to do what your parents tell you to do? As you get older and decisions, maybe your parents don't have the same influence on you. Uh, maybe they do. I don't know. I feel like my parents still have a lot of influence over me. Um, and sometimes I thought by this point I'd be on my own, and I'm glad I'm not because I know I would screw things up a lot. <laughs> but as a 32-year-old, when I'm having to make decisions about my family, about my future, about the things that God's leading me to do for my family and my parents that doesn't make sense to them, who am I going to listen to? Am I going to listen to God? Am I going to listen to the Holy Spirit leading me to make a decision, or am I going to listen to my family? Am I going to do what my parents say is right? And hopefully, for all of us, hopefully our families are in touch with the Holy Spirit and understand what we're being led to do and are supportive and encouraging of us. But it's not always going to be that way. There's going to be times where they don't understand. And so for the, for the four that are listed here, they had to be willing to walk away from their fathers. They had already been cut and come back and join the family business. Their fathers had already invested in them to become the next generation that's going to keep the family business alive. Obviously, they have some sort of respect and whatnot for their family because they've come back to them. And they are walking away. They're leaving all of that behind. And second is uh, the boat. He says their boat. And we've already talked about how these are just ordinary fishermen and these were just ordinary fisher boats. But here's the thing about it. This was their life. This was their career. This was their lifestyle. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to be willing to walk away from a lifestyle that we've created for ourselves. If we are too busy holding on to the life we've created for ourselves, the career we've created for ourselves, and it may not even be a bad thing, don't hear me say jobs are bad because we've all got to have jobs. But if your job is getting in the way of you being the Christian mother, father, husband, wife that God has called you to be, then you've got to look at yourself and say, is my job important enough that my family's spiritual growth suffers? The disciples that Jesus called here are walking away from their boat and they have no idea where their source of income, their food, anything. They don't know where any of that's going to come from. They just know they're going to follow Him. I'm not asking you to quit your jobs. I'm not asking you to leave your families. But I am saying that if we are going to be disciples above all else, where Jesus calls, we go. So first, we see that He chose not the best, but the willing. Second, we see that our primary calling is to be with Him. Third, we see that to follow Him, we have to leave it all. And fourth, we see that He commands us to spiritually reproduce. And odds are you've been okay with me until right now. But read verse 19 again. Follow me. We don't mind stopping there. 
and I will make you fishers of men. Doesn't say, follow me, and I'll raise up preachers and evangelists that'll go fish. Doesn't say, follow me, and I'll keep making religious leaders, and you can just sit in the pews and do nothing. It says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Fishing is essential for discipleship. It's not something that just a few of us are called to do. It's something that we're all mandated to do, to go fish. In fact, in John, Jesus is talking about how He's the vine and we're the branches. And so this picture that we're grafted together and we grow in Him. And He says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciple. I'm here to say today, if you aren't fishing... If you're not bringing fruit, and it's not through you, we've already talked about how He doesn't choose people that can use their abilities. He uses people who are available for His Spirit to use you through, uh, to, for Him to work through you. But if you are not making disciples, then He says, you're proving that you're not one. So, so how do we prove that we are one? We, make, we bear fruit. Fishing spiritually is just a part of who we are. And it makes us uncomfortable. What if I say the wrong things? What if I don't do it right? What if I push somebody away? And, or I don't know any lost people. That's, that's one that I'm guilty of using sometimes. I'm only always at the church. I don't really know lost people. Well, shame on me. Because I didn't see him say, follow me and go sit at synagogue so you never have to deal with people who don't know me. Oh, go fish. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, says, Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Cool thing about that verse. Uh, go, baptize, and teach are our participles. And I'm not smart enough with English to explain much about English except for to say that in that whole verse, there's only one verb. Participles are adverbs that take their meaning from the verb in the sentence. Okay, there's my quick English lesson. There's one verb. Make. As we go, make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you baptizing them in the name of the Father. And so the verb that he's commanded us is to make disciples, to go fish. And the participles there are, as you make disciples, you're going to go look for them. You're going to teach them. You're going to baptize them. But go teach, baptize. They're not the verbs that we're called to do. Make disciples. If we're going to be a disciple, we're going to spiritually reproduce. And so back to the first question that we asked, or well, no, that was about referees. The next question, are you a disciple or are you a Christian? You can very easily look inside yourself and see the answer by answering one question. Am I spiritually reproducing? And if we're not spiritually reproducing, then odds are we're not truly sold out as a disciple. 
the dust of Jesus isn't all over us because if the dust of Jesus was all over us, the dust of Jesus would be getting on everyone that we came in contact with. In John chapter 19, Jesus summarized his ministry on earth by saying he came to seek and save the, the lost. If we're disciples of Jesus, then in the same way we could say that our the summary of our life on this earth, our ministry on this earth is to seek and save the lost. We're here to fish. So we go fish. Earlier this year, J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, introduced the Hoosier One campaign. The idea that if the 16 million Southern Baptists that are meeting across 45,000 churches in the United States this morning would commit to find one person that this year they share the gospel with, imagine the change that would come to the convention. If the 450 of us that were going to meet together for worship this morning, or however many it is I've been, if we would all commit to finding one person to share the gospel with this year, and I don't mean, hey Amanda, let me tell you about the gospel and being done with it, but I mean, I'm going to live my life this year so that you have no excuse but to face the answer to the question, am I going to be a follower of Jesus? So it's this ongoing thing where we're investing in this one. Imagine what change it would make in our church if the 450 of us would commit to do that. Imagine the change it would make in our community if the Southern Baptist churches in Auburn and Opelika would commit to do that. Imagine what change it would make in a society that seems to be heading toward the end times faster and faster and faster every day, if the believers in just in the Southern Baptist Convention, the 16 million or so, would step up and say, this year I'm going to go fish. Two weeks ago, Brother Jeff introduced this idea, 30 days of gospel conversations for the 30 days leading up from that Sunday till Easter. And so we're halfway there. Have you had a gospel conversation? If you hadn't, that's okay. There's still two weeks to go. The idea is not that we build some kingdom on this earth, but the idea is that Jesus said, go fish. So that's what we're going to do. That's what, if we're a disciple, that's what we're going to do. So, in closing, the question that we need to ask today of ourselves, am I a Christian? Or am I a disciple? If the answer to that question is, I'm a disciple, then it's time to go fish. I don't know who God's put in your life. I don't know what opportunities you have, but it's time to use those to fish for the kingdom of God. If the answer is, uh, I'm, I'm a Christian, then today, commit to become a disciple. Surrender all that you have, everything that you, that's ever held you back from going full-fledged into who God has called you to be through your faith in Jesus Christ and become a disciple. Get the dust of Jesus all over you and go fish. Possibly 
the answer to the question is, for you, is neither. And if that's the case, that's okay. But today, I want to invite you to surrender your life to Christ. He's the greatest rabbi that ever lived. He was here at the beginning, and he'll be here beyond the end. He has the Alpha and the Omega. He defeated death and paid a way for you to have eternal salvation with him. So if the answer to your question is neither, then I urge you to do like the disciples in this. Follow Jesus. It'll change your life for the greatest in ways that, that you never knew was possible. So go fish. It's simple, even though it's really difficult. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time that we can spend together. God, I thank you for your word that we can read and, and hear from you. I thank you for your spirit that lives inside of us. God, I thank you that even when we are not able, you are. God, I pray that this morning that we've each looked at ourselves to answer the question, am I a disciple? Am I just a Christian or am I neither? And God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts how we need to respond, whether that's, I know I'm a disciple, but I need to go fishing. God, I pray that you would put the person's heart uh, put the person on our heart that we're supposed to, to be sharing with. Um, God, I, we're just kind of going through the motions. God, I pray that, that today your spirit would move inside of us and that we would step from just going through the motions to follow, follow Jesus. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Be with us as we go throughout the rest of this service. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.